1: Hello and welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. My name is Chris Peters. This is episode 37 of the podcast and so glad you could join me for it. We've got a lot to talk about today. It is the day after the Olympics ended for the North American teams in both the men's and women's hockey tournaments. USA and Canada, of course, played for gold. On the women's side, Canada victorious. Three to two over Team USA in that Olympic final. I think the game... Was a little not not quite as close as the scoreline indicated. However, uh, on the men's side, the both Canada or both, both Canada and the U.S. found themselves bounced in the quarterfinals. The U.S. was on the cusp, forty-three point seven seconds away from advancing to the semifinals before Slovakia tied it up, ended up winning in a shootout, <sighs> and uh, that was a tough one. That was a tough one to swallow. Meanwhile, Canada shut out by Sweden in the, the final quarterfinal. So the semifinals on the men's side will be ROC versus Sweden, Finland versus Slovakia. Um, I like Finland's chances. Uh, as we record this, they will play in the semifinal on Friday. The bronze medal game will be on Saturday in Beijing, and then on the gold medal game is on Sunday in Beijing, and I believe that will be airing um, Saturday night In the United States. Um, So we'll see who ends up going in that direction. So, a bit of a bummer for the North American teams on the men's side, but let's talk about that women's gold medal game and the women's tournament. We're going to, but before I do talk about that, I just wanted to mention that I have a guest today. His name is Matt Moran. You might not know the name, you might not know. Uh, about him, but he's a, a, basically, this is an experiment. He's a friend of mine who I talk a lot of hockey with. He's a, he is a, a former uh, junior hockey scout, very well connected in the hockey world and just has uh, a lot of stories from his, his trails on the road. We also talked a lot about the NHL and about the Olympics, um, talked a bit about USA getting bounced and, and some of the things, uh, the philosophies and the team building and all those different things. And Matt is a guy that I talk hockey with every single day um, and so I've decided I got to get him on the podcast and talk, have some of those conversations for an audience because we, uh, we definitely have, uh, we had a lot to talk about and it was, it was fun to get there. So I hope that you guys enjoy it. Please let me know, uh, how you felt about it, uh, either, uh, on Twitter or, or in the reviews or what have you. So, um, but, but Matt's a, a good friend of mine and a guy that I really enjoy, uh, uh, talking hockey with. So. But getting back to the Olympics and, and getting back to that gold medal game, and um, I have a recap up on dailyfaceoff.com that has you know thoughts on on the game itself, some analysis, what went wrong for Team USA, um, and I gotta say, it, it, was, it was one of the more fascinating finals in this saga of USA versus Canada at the Olympics. Canada now has five gold medals, the US has two, and so there continues to be a disconnect for what what was happening kind of in the buildup to the Olympics for, for the US and what the end results have been. And over the years, the development advantage had seemed to swing towards the Americans' favor because they had won eight of nine Women's World Championships um, and then won that 2018 gold medal in Pyeongchang. So to come back here and to really not have an answer for Canada's speed and skill, and also to maybe not contend with the depth of Canada's roster, that leaves a lot of questions and the things that we have to understand. I tweeted about this, and some people misconstrued it a little bit um, about what I what I actually meant. But basically, the U.S. had a lot of retirements uh, from the last Olympics. You know, Megan Duggan, Jocelyn and Monique Lamoureux, um, Casey Bellamy, uh, Emily Falzer. I mean, like there there are players that. Had a big impact on that team last time around. Canada also lost several players, but they still had most of their core intact. And so, you know, when you look at Team USA's core, not only did they lose that, then Brianna Decker gets hurt, and she that so the core is even less. So you're basically Hillary Knight and Kendall Coyne Schofield, and then the younger parts of that core like Megan Keller and Caleb Barnes, and um, you know players Alex Carpenter, Abby Rock, you know that are that are starting to come into there. So. So I'll tell you what, this is This is going to be, you know, a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching coming out of this because if you watch the game, you know that the scoreline was different. I think until the third period, the U.S. had great pushback in the third period. They actually went full bore. They had a chance and it was too little too late. They they get, they were a down 3-0 at one point in the game. It felt pretty, that, that third goal that was scored by Marie Philippe Poulin, who, can we just pause on her for one second because... Let me tell you, possibly the greatest championship performer the sport has ever seen. Think about this. Seven goals in four gold medal games. So she has scored in four consecutive gold medal games. She's the only woman to do that, man or woman. Now, we do have to have that. that there's that small caveat that the, the gold medal game... In the inter- in the grand scheme of the Olympics is is you know relatively new you know you go back to 1980 and it was a round robin format and previous and pre- in Olympics after that so there wasn't necessarily a championship game that came along in the 90s um, but at the same time the fact that Marie Flute Pellet has scored in four gold medal games I mean unbelievable unbelievable and she may come back for yet another Olympics because she's still the best player in the world and so to to have her go off as she did that is certainly you know it's it it doesn't help it doesn't help your chances but you also have to give a, a huge shout out to Sarah Nurse as well breaking Haley Wickenheiser's single tournament points record with 18 she had a goal and an assist in the gold medal game and was outstanding throughout that tournament and the one thing that I want to mention, and you know, if you listen to Nicole Hazi on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when we previewed the women's tournament, she did have a single the praises of women's college hockey. And you know, Sarah Nurse went to the University of Wisconsin. Marie Philippe went to Boston University. I mean, you know, the best players of Canada and USA's women's programs have trained in U.S. college college campuses. Now, if you go to the University of Wisconsin right now, you can see a player named Daryl Watts who did not make the Canadian Olympic team. That's how good this team was that Daryl Watts really didn't even sniff the lineup and, and, and get it to get an opportunity. She wasn't even uh, invited to the camp. Um, and that's how deep this Canadian roster was. But Daryl Watts currently playing at the University of Wisconsin. She's on the cusp of becoming the all-time leading scorer in women's college hockey. Um, and, and so, you know, if you are in the Midwest, if you are out East, there is a plethora of opportunities for you to see high-level women's hockey at the collegiate level. Um... Go out there if you want to see what's next and what's on the horizon for the Olympics. Go to college hockey games uh, across the country. I mean, and, and then we could even have Sarah Fillier, who's had eight goals in the tournament for Canada, return to Princeton next season and play out her, you know, play out her collegiate career. And so you could see, you know, current gold medalists uh, in college hockey, which is kind of amazing um, to see. But, but to get back to the U.S. fact, you know... You, you tip your cap to Canada because I think that this Canadian team may have been the best ever. Um, they, they, they outscored opponents 58 to 10 in the tournament. They were outshot by the U S in both games they played, but how many times, how, especially in the first two periods of that gold medal game. And, and for almost the entirety of that preliminary round game, how many grade a chances did USA get? A lot was coming from the outside Canada did such a good job of protecting that front. And then not only that, they had an elite goaltender and anne renee Debian who, made some huge saves late in that third period. She, she, she stopped uh, 16 shots, 16 of 17, I believe, in the, in that in that final period. And the only goal she allowed was to, you know, kind of in garbage time in the third period um, when Amanda Kessel was able to get one home and, and make it a one goal game. And if you had, you know, I think, I noticed there were some people that were betting on the women's hockey tournament as, as sports betting continues to uh, sweep the nation by storm. And uh, if you had the puck line in that one, tough bounce to to get that one. That's a bad beat when you, the goal comes in in garbage time there. Um, but it also showed the fight of the U.S. women. They 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 fought to the bitter end. There's no question. It wasn't an effort issue. But after the game, you start kind of breaking things down. You're looking, and and one of the things that I think was the most common thing, and and uh, you know, I was writing my recap and. I love that they had time on ice. At the Olympics, at the, at the World Championships, they, they tracked time on ice. And time on ice isn't a foolproof way to determine how a player is playing or anything like that, but it does tell you about what the coaching staff thinks of their team. And if you look at the game sheet for this game, this gold medal game, Team USA had basically 10 players that they relied on for the entirety of the game. They had their top six forwards, Hannah Brandt, Hillary Knight, Kendall Coyne Schofield, Amanda Kessel, Alex Carpenter, and Abby Rock, all of them played 21 or more minutes. We're talking top four defenseman minutes for forwards in this game, where they're going in on the four check. They're, they're covering a lot more ice than a defenseman normally does. And so there's a lot, that's that's expending a lot of energy. Among defenders, Megan Keller had 11 minutes, 11 minutes and 11 seconds of ice time in the third period alone her one period of ice time was more than one two three four five six seven eight players on the roster that had in the whole game megan keller played that in the third period the top four defensemen for team usa had no fewer than 23 or no fewer than 25 minutes of of ice time so you know kayla barnes megan keller Basically, there would be one of them out there at any moment in time, which is good. They're both tremendous defensemen. You want them out there as much as humanly possible. Um, but when you have basically your bottom six and your and and your top or your bottom pairing plus your extra defensemen are not engaged in the game, it's not going to help. Conversely, Canada basically rolled off their top three lines and their top and all three pairings of their defense. Only a few didn't get you know, a regular shift towards the end of the game. And they didn't have a single player um, that, that the only player that was over 25 minutes of ice time in the game was Renata Fast, who's one of the best defenders in the world. So you look at that and you say, how does Canada have that depth versus the U S is it a coaching situation? It did the U.S. not trust the young players enough, like, you know, like Grace Sumwinkle and, and Abby Murphy. Did they not? And if they didn't, is that a problem with roster building or is that a problem with the coaching staff? Because they've they've been centralized for a long time. There are no secrets. They know their team. But if you have to rely on the veteran players that significantly in a game against Canada, it's not a recipe for success. One player I do want to point out from Team USA, who I I had a lot of questions coming into this tournament. How effective was she going to be? It's kind of getting towards the end of her career. You know, she doesn't have the pace necessarily that some other players do. And that'd be Hillary Knight. She scored a huge shorthanded goal in the game. She led Team USA with 10 points in the tournament. Very much among the top women's players in the world. Still, she had six shots on goal in the game. All out effort. That's all you can ask for from them, and 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 they they gave everything they had, and it wasn't enough because I don't I, I think Canada had more. They had more to give. They had more players to play, and in the end, the the, the difference of the game was essentially one line for Canada doing all the scoring in the game, yeah, because marie philippe Poulin and <laughs> and Sarah Nurse were in on you know the goals it briefly plan was in on all three goals she had a goal and two assi- or two goals and an assist so if you look at Chang and you look at this year now and you say why is the gap gotten so much wider because it felt wider um it felt a lot wider and it felt like there wasn't you know that that that's a concern um in that four-year span especially since the U.S. had continued to 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 develop well and and, and compete at the world championships and you know, we're, have always been a goal away. And, you you know, but you look at the gold medal count now and it's five for Canada, two for the U.S. The U.S. has many, you know, they're even on Women's World Championship medals, I believe now, gold medals now. And so why is it continuing to happen on the biggest stage where they can't get the job done? Um, and, and so we start having these questions once again that were kind of silenced by the 2018 gold medal but you even think back to that game it went to a shootout it was that close to going the other way um so a lot to talk about a lot to discuss and i think over these next months and weeks and and years usa hockey will have to do some soul searching in terms of how do we get to how do we get to that edge where it's not just gold medals at the women's worlds and the women's worlds under 18s how do we get to that next level and um it's going to it's going to take some doing. It's going to take some doing because it's not going to get easier because now you have to replace more players. We don't know yet who all will be back next time around. You know, is is Kendall Coin Schofield still going to come back and 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 go go at it for another one? Is Hillary Knight going to attempt to play in her fifth Olympics and will she be able? You know, will she have the the ability as she as she continues to you know, be on the wrong side of 30? You know, and, and did we just see the last game of Brianna Decker, unfortunately, end in injury? Uh, and that's another thing where, you know, your heart goes out to her. She stayed for the rest of the tournament. She was on the ice with her jersey on, needed a, uh, one of those scooters for somebody with a broken leg, got out there and, and received her medal. And what a warrior she's been for this program for so long. You know, and, and others, Me- Megan Kessel, or sorry, Man- Amanda Kessel and, and Lee Steckline you know, at least decline apparently was talked out of retirement to come play in this Olympics. So that's probably it for her. And she's been one of the, the stalwarts on defense for this team for a long time. So you have more and more players to replace. The U S has competed very well at the women's world under 18s. You know, they, they went on a run there where they won four consecutive gold medals and Joel Johnson, who was the coach of team USA was the coach of those under 18 teams. So, um, you know, so he's familiar with that, but that also begs the question of so many of those women were part of that run, um, and yet they weren't able to to do the same at the senior level. And there there is a big difference. No get me wrong, there's a big difference. Just like at the NHL level, there's a big difference from, you know, the 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 Olympic level in women's hockey is so much higher than anything else that exists in the game. Um, and it and it a, a select group of players are able to play at that high of a level and the U S just needs to make sure that they have more of them next time around, because I don't think you can go through a tournament playing 10 players against the best team in the world. So something to think about. Also, as I mentioned, USA drops out in the quarterfinals, that, that incredible, uh, comeback from Slovakia. And, you know, certainly I think you look at team USA and the things that they could have done differently. I currently have a, an extended, um, recap of that game and also, Player-by-player player notes on all of the NHL prospects on Team USA's roster available on Hockey Sense on Substack. And if you want to support this podcast, please subscribe to Hockey Sense on Substack. It's hockey sense.substack.com. And you can read all of the Olympic recaps and also that last one has my my final say on, on the prospects. But a couple of things that I wanted to point out um, about that team. First of all, hats off to that U.S. Men's Olympic team. They were thrown together weeks before the tournament. Nobody came into the season thinking they were going to be Olympians. And then uh, by late January, they were Olympians. They were named to the team. Um, USA Hockey went with a predominantly college-heavy roster. And they basically showed through the preliminary round when they went 3-0 that that was going to work. They beat Canada, they beat Germany, who was the defending silver medalist, and they beat China, who I think was actually better than most people expected them to be because it was essentially North American players, but either way, I think Canada, uh, USA did a did a nice job in that tournament overall. Canada managed to get through the qualification round, but then fell to Sweden, um, which had a very veteran team, a lot of NHL former NHL players on that roster and guys that have have played in world championships and things of that nature. But getting back to the U S you know, there are a couple of factors at play that certainly didn't help. Jake Sanderson had to miss the first part of the tournament with uh, COVID protocols. Then he comes in and the first game he plays, he gets injured. Wasn't available for the rest of the games may have not been available for the gold medal game, though. I think he probably would have tried to play. Um, And now we have to wait and see where he's at, but that's that's something that that certainly hurt the depth of the blue line. I think that the defense was was one area where the U.S. was a little bit lacking in terms of puck moving dynamic, uh, dynamic offensive abilities. Um, so you know if you look if you want to nitpick at the roster, you can look at that. Thought the goaltending was phenomenal in the tournament. Drew Camesso was 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 excellent. Strauss Mann gave his team a chance to win. Going into the last one, he stopped every shooter but one, and the U.S. failed to score on five consecutive shootout attempts for the second straight Olympics. That's exactly how they got bounced by the Czech Republic uh, just a few years ago and Pavel Francos I believe was the uh, the goaltender now with the Colorado Avalanche he was uh, the goaltender for for the Czechs in that game so it's not the way that you want it to end I I don't you know certainly, it was a bit of a choke job at the end just to, they, I think the U.S. played far too conservatively. They got away from their attacking mindset, and I think that Slovakia actually did a really good job of nullifying that attacking mindset by stretching the ice out a little bit, especially in their own zone, where they were putting pucks behind their net and they weren't allowing the U.S. to to, to get the forecheck going, which was so important for them in their win against Germany and certainly against Canada, um, and they nullified USA's speed in that regard, but I think that the U.S. sat back for far too much of the third period, and in the end, that came back to bite them because they, they didn't keep the pressure on. They failed to score on a five-on-three power play and then basically almost punted on 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 their last power play of the game where they were just trying to kill time and um, play conservatively, not make mistakes. And I think that when you do that, you, know, you, you leave the door cracked open for your opponent and Slovakia broke the door down. So that's how the Olympics ends. That's all we really have to say about that. But before we get to my interview with Matt Moran, I did want to... Mentioned that the double IHF held a press conference after the women's gold medal game, and they had made several important announcements. The first being that the women's world under 18 championship, which was canceled in this winter. And they said they wouldn't be able to reschedule it. Well, it has now going to be in the United States in June. We don't know exactly where yet. It's uh, the, the IHF termed it as North Northern United States. I don't have a specific site for you. I would not be shocked if that site was in somewhere in Minnesota, um, particularly in the Twin Cities area, thinking about maybe Ritter Arena at the University of Minnesota, Tria, Tria Rink, the, the, the practice facility of the Minnesota Wild, maybe the XL Energy Center uh, would want to put the ice in for a little bit. I'm not sure, but um, that's something to keep an eye on. But great news for that and great news for Olympic women's Olympic hockey because that's an important development event. It's an important stepping stool. There is no World Juniors for women's hockey at this point. Women's under 18s is essentially that next step, and it's the first taste for many of those women to get their 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 first uh, international competition. And I'm so glad that those women will have the opportunity to play now because they were were robbed of that with no effort to postpone as opposed to just simply cancel. So uh, also good on USA Hockey for stepping up. It sounds like Sweden will be able to get the, the games next year. That's what they, they they were the host country. They had to give up rights in order to make this happen. So good on USA hockey for stepping up. Also, if you're a fan of this podcast, well then you probably care a whole heck of a lot about the World Juniors. That is expected to be rescheduled for mid-August after the Holinka Gretzky Cup. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, if you any of the they're, they're going to restart the entire tournament. They're starting from square one. The games that that happened in Edmonton in the winter are wiped out. So Connor Bedard's four-goal game, Owen Power's hat trick, first defenseman hat trick, all that's gone. Um, at least lost to the history books. We we saw it, so it happened, but you know, not going to be part of the history books. Players that were eligible for that tournament, but may have maybe 20 now, um, will still be eligible to play. So that's good. But here's the problem: <laughs> Owen Power, Matty Beniers, Jake Sanderson. Kent Johnson, maybe a lot of players that we're on rosters there. And and by the way, the teams can go ahead and just replace their entire roster. They do not have to go with the same players. And in, in fact, it's probably going to be impossible to go with the same players because I, I mentioned this on Twitter and I'm going to say it here. If I'm an NHL team and one of my very best prospects, if it's, you know, an Owen Power, a Matty Beniers, a Jake Sanderson, I'm probably not going to want them to play a summer hockey tournament before their right before their first NHL training camp. Um, and so, uh, it also shortens their off season, which is already going to be short to begin with. And the risk of injury is very high. You look at what Kirby doc got injured in a pre-tournament game playing for Canada, uh, at the world juniors. And I don't know that he's been the same player since. Um, and so that is the kind of thing that, that teams have to think about. The New York Rangers decided not to allow Alexi Lafreniere to play in the rescheduled World Juniors um, last in, in 2021, which would have uh, been right before the NHL season started. I, I think that that's going to be a very common thing that happens here. Um, teams are often eager to allow their players to go to World Junior camps to get that experience to, to play. But when the the competition at the actual World Juniors is going to be incredibly intense. There were some injuries at the last World Juniors. David Juracek, who is one of the top defense draft prospects um, in this year's draft, blew out his knee um, in the game against Canada in a tournament, in a game that will, at this point, no longer exist and, you know, has missed a good chunk of his draft season as a result. So, injury risk of injury is high. It's something the teams have to consider. It's not ideal, but it is the way that it is. And, I think that you, you will not see the same teams playing in this rescheduled world juniors. I'd be interested to see if some of the teams like Canada and the U S start looking towards the future already and, and letting some of their younger players get in there. Um, you know, players that are, might be on the under 18 team at the national team development program, guys that are, you know, in their first year at the OHL, you know, who knows it, it really, it really is unclear at this point, but now, the national governing bodies have a target to shoot for to build teams. There will be, you know, some sort of process. I'm sure there'll be a pre-tournament camp as well. And then when it comes to COVID protocols and everything else, your guess is as good as mine as how that's going to all work out. But the IIHF very clearly committed to getting this fixed. All right. So that is a lot of international hockey news packed into 25 minutes of this podcast, and I don't want to waste any more time before getting you to this conversation. So let me set this up a little bit. Like I said before, Matt Moran, one of my good friends in hockey, a guy that I've learned a lot from over the years, and and we bounce ideas off of each other. And you know, he is uh, has scouted for teams like the Chicago Steel, the Tri City Storm, the Muskegon Lumberjacks, the Windsor Spitfires, the Sioux Greyhounds, and and scouting at the junior level is something that. Is underappreciated because it's a very difficult job and it's a very important job for the as part of the hockey ecosystem. You'll hear me say that in the interview a couple of times, where basically those scouts that are finding the players of the future are looking, you know, they're they're creating the pool essentially that the NHL is going to pull from. Um, so their job is incredibly important and it's also often filled with a lot of hilarity and and hijinks and different things, which Maddie will get into in the interview. Um, but yeah, this is this, uh, I want to try to give, uh, a lot of different people and a lot of different, from a lot of different backgrounds, voices on this podcast. We've had documentary filmmakers, we've had coaches, we've had journalists. Um, and this is, uh, you know, basically, uh, bringing on a friend to chat hockey and we'll see how it goes. If you guys enjoy it, maybe we'll do, do some more and and I'll, I'll talk to more people that, that enjoy, uh, talking hockey as well. But without further ado, I'm going to send this over to my interview with my close personal friend and a former junior hockey scout, Matt Moran. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined today by my close personal friend, somebody that I talk hockey with every single day, usually in G-chat form. Um, somebody that I think has, has influenced the way that I think about the game and the way that I think about players. And he is what I would call a hockey renaissance man. You may not know his name, but he has been involved in hockey in a long time. He's had an interesting life in hockey and uh, he knows people. He knows a lot of people and he knows the game very well and he knows evaluation. And as I've said before, junior scouts, very unheralded, but they are very much a part of the subculture that drives everything towards the NHL. You see a lot of NHL scouts got their start as junior hockey scouts it's a difficult often thankless job but it is an important one and it is part of what helps us get these players to the next level so i'm very very pleased to be joined by my my close personal friend matt moran matt welcome to talking hockey sense
0: thank you christopher for having me very excited
1: yeah well i'm i'm excited to have you because we have these conversations on a daily basis about players about hockey about life and just you know i figure let's bring that to the audience here. And, you know, it's not like, I mean, let's face it. You're not, you're not Elliot Friedman. You're not Bob McKenzie. I've had who, who have been on the podcast. So this is a, but, but you are somebody that has in my world uh, made a pretty substantial impact in how I think about the game and and the conversations that we have often challenge my own thoughts. So uh, let's challenge the reader's thoughts as well. But, but Matt, you know, before I get into that, I want to, you know, just kind of running it down, you know, you've, you've been around, you've, you've played, uh, played prep hockey at Avon Old Farms with uh, the great Jonathan Quick. Uh, So you can always have that on your, uh, on your hockey DB. I don't think they do Avon Old Farms on hockey DB, but your elite prospects is electric. Um, And then you've also got, you know, your scouting background, having been in the both the OHL with the Windsor Spitfires and the Sioux Greyhounds and having been with the Muskegon Lumberjacks, the Chicago Steel, the Lincoln Stars, lincoln start tri-city tri-city one of those Nebraska, yeah the tri-city tri-city storm and you know so you've you've been around the rinks you've been around people you obviously talk to agents you talk to fellow scouts you've come up through the ranks with a lot of guys that have moved on to the nhl um you have friends in front offices and things of that nature but you know just tell me a little bit more about your hockey life and kind of you you, it's not your it's not your full-time job but it's a big part of your life
0: yeah, no, I think that's right, and you know, I grew up in a really non-traditional hockey area right outside of Washington D.C. And uh, as you mentioned, was was fortunate enough to go to Avon Old Farms in Connecticut and play prep hockey for John Gardner. Um, had a great three-year run there and was able to play with a lot of great players that went on to have you know awesome college and pro careers. You mentioned Jonathan Quick. Uh, Matt Lashoff was also part of our crew. Uh, Jared DeMichael, who took RIT to the Frozen Four and then won a national championship with uh, UMass on the bench, uh, was a teammate and is still a close personal friend of mine. And, um, you know, just very lucky to count a number of of guys like that you know as still very good friends you know regardless of how how long we played um, because we did have those three years together which was awesome and um, you know was very abundant very quickly that I was never gonna make a, a living playing the game when I got to Avon uh, but was always you know attracted to the personnel side of things I loved you know, following college commitments and watching other players and reading about players your own age um, you know from across the country there wasn't a lot of opportunity you know, in the 85 birth year that I am to travel across the country and play best on best, these leagues just didn't exist yet. Uh, or, or they weren't certainly as prominent, you know, as they are today. And so, you know, really fell in love with, you know, that aspect of the game. And, you know, some listeners out there may remember the old website, USHR, um, us hockey report was, you yeah. know, like a must read every night after study hall. And, um, you know, really, really wanted to find a way to, to stay involved in the game on that side. Um, and as you mentioned have scouted in, in, in a various, uh, in a bunch of different leagues for a number of teams. And, you know, I think I can humbly say that, um, you know, I failed upwards my entire scouting career, Um, you know, kind of fell into something in Chicago at a young age, right out of college. Um, And, you know, we had a a really young, fun, energetic crew that just, you know, had no business having the roles that we had in the organization and, uh, you know, kind of learning on the fly, um, some awful teams that just had, really good players every couple of years and some NHL draft picks and you know, you get to meet a lot of people and, um, you know, you kind of continue to, to build your own network and got an opportunity to, uh, to take a role at OHL central scouting for a couple of years and continue to fail upwards into the Windsor Spitfires organization where we won a Memorial cup in 2017. Um, just a, a very, very small part of, of a brilliant staff and was just awesome to be part of something that's bigger than, than one person. And so, um, you know still enjoy doing it, certainly less involved than I have been um, you know, in years past, life and, and the real career kind of get in the way. But um, you know, very fortunate to still count some of my closest friends um as those that I've met, you know, kind of in the rink and and talking hockey.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing how how fast and how deep those bonds can become. Um, you know, whether you might you might work with somebody for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden you got a friend for life, which is which is I've always found interesting. Like I just think about that with with uh, various tournaments that I worked at and certainly with my time at USA hockey, where, you know, you, you just get into a group of people for and you're all working towards the same goal. And there's just some, some interesting bond that forms through that. So um, yeah. So, you know, and, and the interesting thing is, is as you're doing this career, you're also, you know, carving out a full-time job. So what is, what would you say you do, Matt? What, What would you say that you do in addition to being a hockey scout?
0: Yeah, I think between you know talking hockey and the day-to-day finance job, I can put people to sleep in a number of ways. Um, <laughs> I'm a partner at a private equity firm here in the Philadelphia area, investing in software, healthcare, and technology companies. Um, it's a lot of fun. Travel all over the country, uh, meet great entrepreneurs, and and um, you know have a lot of fun doing it. And I think uh, that's enough for uh, that's enough for the day job. Yeah,
1: today. I know, but it is it is it is kind of an interesting thing because you've got. You've got that that job where there is like you know the the everyday stresses and the various things, but then at the end of the day on the weekends you might be able to get to a rink and get to a you know yeah so yeah it's a fun yeah. it's a
0: fun release from the the stresses of that yeah figure.
1: all right so uh, since you're here and since we're talking about hockey I think it only makes sense to ask you about you're scouting, you know, kind of education. And, and, you know, we talk about player evaluation on this podcast a lot. And and it's usually all about my process, but I'd be curious about kind of your process and specifically, you know, it's one thing to try and project players for the NHL. It's quite another to project younger players for a junior level of hockey. So it takes a it takes a similar skill set, but I, I'd imagine that some of the processes are, are a little different. So I just wonder if you can kind of let us in on some of the insight. And, and we are going to talk about current events hockey as well. We're going to talk about the NHL and, and the draft and, and and also the Olympics here in a little bit. But before we go there, I just, you know, I, I, I figure it would help people understand your uh, kind of your philosophy and kind of how you learned on the job.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I was really lucky to learn from a lot of smart tenured hockey people at a young age that, you know, took a shot on someone that just wanted to learn the business and was kind of a sponge, um, you know, and would do anything to kind of get involved. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, evolved my thinking over time, just kind of being more involved on the team building side, as the years went by, you know, is that you're watching young kids play and there's a big misconception out there that, you know, teams draft poorly in the USHL. If all those players don't go on to be, Superstars in college and then in the NHL, right? And I think the one thing that that maybe doesn't get talked about enough is how different the mission is for guys that are scouting and gals that are scouting in the USHL and other junior leagues versus people that are evaluating, you know, at the pro level. And um, you know, the typical USHL cycle is a player plays for two years, and you're watching 15 and 16 year olds and sometimes 17 and 18 year olds in a different draft, and you're thinking, how is this individual going to make an impact? on my team for the next two or three years, or maybe in two or three years for a year or two with the singular goal of moving them on to college. And maybe they'll make an impact at the World Junior one day, likely not. That's what the National Team Development Program is for. Um, But anything after them getting a college scholarship is upside, right? And so one of the things I learned learned quickly was that you can't really box someone into a role two to three years from now because they're developing as people and as players both physically and emotionally. And it's really hard to say, Hey, the best kid at U 16 is going to jump in right away next year and be the best player on Omaha because they don't have X or Y and he's got it. Well, usually you're wrong more than you're right in that regard. Right. 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 You, know, you look at how people evaluate in the Western hockey league where they draft Bantams at 14. I don't know how you do that job because kids are just so different um, you know, a different maturity level, um you know they're nowhere near puberty and developing um and so you're really playing the long game and you're trying to fill holes you know year by year based on kids going to college early or staying a year back college really have all the control um you know when you're scouting and building a ushl program um you know for for the most part and so you're trying to plug gaps and there's players that have been drafted two or three different times by two or three different teams in the ushl right right? and you know a highly highly touted 16 year old that goes high in the futures draft. You know, may not play for three years and from a different team that drafted them again in a completely different role. Um, you know, and so it's hard to it's hard to kind of view everyone in the same you know lens in terms of upside because you don't know what their role is going to be or when their time's going to come to play in the league. Right. Um,
1: yeah. So you know, I and I think that that's it's it's such a difficult thing to do. But as you mentioned, it's the the, the different mission. But there's also an element too, I'd imagine that as you're watching certain players, you can tell the ones that have that something special that maybe they are going to go to the next level. So when you are evaluating in that way, and by the next level, I mean, like going to the NHL, being drafted, having an opportunity to play, you know, a lot, be a good college player, be a good uh, pro. Um, So I just, maybe, I don't know if there are any examples or if there's anything from your career where you're just like, you were watching a player and, and. You know, it, it was just plainly evident, even at a fi- at fifteen years old, that that you know that they were they were going to be special.
0: Yeah, I think special is relative too, though, right? And yeah. you know, you watch yeah. today, and it's to me, it's all about smarts. Um, you know, if you can't think the game at an elite level and quickly, I don't know what your ceiling is going to be. Um, you know. All these organizations now are so invested in the development of their prospects, even at the USHL level, they've got dedicated player development resources. Um, you know, then you get someone as your NHL rights, and they've got their hands all over you. You know, they don't spend time trying to make you think the game better, you know, overtly because you usually can't. They'll work on your shot and your skating and improving stride and all the mechanical things. But when you really watch where players differentiate themselves at a young age, is their ability to think, and that usually helps them transition faster to junior hockey. Um, you know, my dad always said, you know, hockey's like an elevator and everybody gets off at a different floor, regardless of when your time comes. And, and where I watch players really kind of peak and, and exit stage right, so to speak, no matter how skilled they were as a midget player, or even as a junior, is when their ability to think the game, you know, doesn't get them to that next level. And so I think, you know, anyone that does your job as an independent evaluator and trying to project players, you know, to the NHL, where you're certainly pigeonholed in roles just to make a team, right? It really comes down to those smarts. Um, But that doesn't mean, again, you know, we're picking a USHL team, but 16 to 20 year olds not projecting, you know, a Stanley Cup winning team in the NHL five years from now, which is way harder to do. And, you know, I'll look back on one example, we drafted a player in Chicago, I forget the year 12 or 13, maybe named Robbie Jackson from the LA Junior Kings. He was an awesome midget player, third round pick, He had a million points in his draft year. Um, You know, we couldn't score goals the year before. I think our leading scorer had like 14 goals and this kid came into the league as a 16 year old, won rookie of the year as a true 16 year old and scored 25 goals, which is really hard to do in the USHL for very. very Um, You know, the the, the league is certainly more talented offensively than it ever has been now. Um, But this was, you know, eight, 10 years ago when he came in and just kind of blew the roof off the place and we had a great USHL career. We ended up trading him Dubuque for a bunch of picks at the deadline the next year when we were golfing by February. But <laughs> um, you know, Robbie Robbie had a great USHL career and scored a ton and then went to St. Cloud and was a great college player, but you know, had a couple American league games and, and is still playing, but he's never gonna be that elite high end NHL prospect. Right. But, but yeah, that's but not was... what we picked. That's not what we picked him for.
1: Right. Exactly. And he, yeah, he served, he certainly served his purpose and was a great USHL player and, and definitely a very good college player and a big part of St. Cloud state's rise in the last several years under Bob Motzko and now with Brett Larson there. So, um, so yeah, so players like that matter as well. And like, they're, they're all part of this ecosystem that, that junior hockey feeds into. So. Right. But as uh, you're,
0: as you're building a team like that, sorry. Um, oh, no, go please. You go into, you go into a summer camp with six spots to fill And you're really excited about two to four kids that are coming in from a North American League team and they scored 55 points the year before and they've got all this junior experience. And then here comes, you know, five foot seven, 150 pound, you know, midget player, high draft pick and produces at a level that exceeds everyone's expectations. And you wonder why these kids that lateral from the North American League with a bunch of points struggle to get it going, right? Mm -hmm. And so there really is no formula. It's just about finding kids that are going to take advantage of an opportunity that fill a need that you have. But my needs isn't, aren't going to be the same as, you know, anyone else, you know, in the league more often than not.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Know, so it's, it's,
0: hard to, it's hard to evaluate across leagues. And you hear it from NHL guys all the time. How do I compare someone for the draft that plays in Windsor, right, and plays Western Conference OHL games every night versus a kid that plays at Avon Old Farms who scores 100 in a New England prep league that's significantly weaker, right? Who's going to have a more a more significant impact in the NHL probably the kid from the OHL, but you just don't know because for every, you know, high end OHL draft pick, you get a Cam Atkinson in the sixth round who's going to play, you know, forever in the league who was, yeah. you know, a player right to college.
1: Right. Yep. And that's another Avon old farm wing beaver, um, there. And among, yeah. among the other wing beavers, we should mention, I mean, Trevor egress and,
0: um, Spencer, Spencer, Trevor Zegers, Knight. Spencer Knight, Nick Benino, Yeah. Cam Chris Higgins, who was uh first yep. round pick long of Montreal long. way back when, um, yeah. John Gardner just got his 800th win as a prep coach. Phenomenal. Yeah. Just, just a, a cool place.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. Real cool place. Somehow they let you in and uh, they, uh, I'm sure they are very pleased about that decision. Now that you're on, this. Didn't, you're didn't on the, me for anything. Well, you're on talking hockey sense now, so you've no. made it. Um, So yeah. Radio. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, I do want to go, 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 back to the scouting uh, conversation, yeah. but, I, but before we do that, I want to, I want to switch over to a little bit of current events because um. Like I said at the top, Matt and I talk a lot. We'll we'll talk about games that we've watched. We'll talk about players that we've seen. We'll talk about different things. Um, and we're recording this the day after the United States was eliminated from the Winter Olympics. The the men's team. A lot of guys that played in the USHL played at the national team development program. Played, uh, you know, in in uh, in the are, are on their way to the NHL college hockey players, the kind of guys that that you've you've had experience with and and evaluating, but. You know, one thing that they did in this tournament, the decision was to go young, to, to make sure that they brought in a, a predominantly young roster. They, they learned from 2018 that they their best players were their college players and they thought they were the most productive players. And they said, well, well, let's get more of that. And for three games, it worked beautifully. And then unfortunately, they 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 lose. We talked about it at the top of the podcast, but, you know, unfortunately, they lose this uh this quarterfinal matchup with Slovakia we're 43 seconds away from making it to the semifinal. Um, and instead we're all left to second guess, but when you first saw the roster and you saw the number of college players, what was your initial thought as, as somebody that's, you know, been around hockey has seen it and, and, and also was very familiar with uh, quite a few of those players.
0: Yeah. You know, I I'll preface this by saying, um, no one's a bigger fan than you and I of just rooting for USA hockey, right? Regardless of what it looks like, it's just awesome to watch people compete and represent the country and, and USA Hockey's come a a long way, um, you know, from when we were growing up playing uh, in terms of international prominence, which is awesome. And, you know, I, I had no issues at all with, with how they put the roster together. And I know you and I have talked behind the scenes and we would work the phones to try and find out who was in the mix and who wasn't and trying to piece players together. And, You know, I love the way that they learned from 2018 in Korea where they said, hey, these young guys play with a lot of jam and spunk and, you know, they're the drivers, right? They're the ones that make this go. And that is no slight at all to the Americans that are playing in Europe, right? And, um, you know, that that were in 2018 and even the the non-college players on this year's team. But uh, I love the way they built it. And I think when you watch them play, you know, early on, these guys were definitely believers in like the art of the possible right? They heard so much about how young they were. I think I heard on the broadcast last night, they had five 19 year olds yeah. on the team. And I think yeah. there were a couple more that still had junior eligibility and they're playing in the Olympics. man.
1: Yeah. And,
0: you know, aside from the first, maybe half of the China game uh, in game one, you know, these guys played to their ceiling almost every night. Um, but I think what was the ultimate downfall for the group was that you know, they just didn't have anything more to give. They played as as hard as they could and as as well as they could, but were capped by their own limitations. I think really? that you know the college players again. I thought Matthew Nyes and Abrazizi and Beneers were, I would say, some of the best players in the whole tournament. Yeah, easily. Uh, you know, and and slower to get going maybe in some of their college seasons. Not all of them, but they came in. They weren't afraid of anything, but when those guys, and this is again, with, with all due respect, and I hope they all have long NHL careers and, and they're great prospects. They're not Patrick Kane and Austin Matthews. They don't have that next year generational kind of go, so to speak. Right. right. And to me, Chris, it felt like watching these games, like they had to manufacture their goals, right? Like the average goal last night was awesome. You know, that, you know, tic-tac-toe you know, streaking through the, the, through the slot there, but, that wasn't happening three or four times a period they made a lot of their goals happen just with hard work and gritty work. And, yeah. um, you know, the glaring weakness to me was on the back end. Um, you know, again, not a slight to the players just hampered by, you know, their ability to play above their ceiling for a long period of time. You know, Brock Faber was outstanding. No Jake Sanderson hurts,
1: you know, yeah, quite a bit time. losing him, mm-hmm.
0: um, you know, his ability to be a driver, And then, you know, you have some of these veterans playing in Europe, like, who's this Cooper? Yeah, Frank Cooper, yeah, he was really good. Unbelievable, man. And again, congrats, like, no clue who he was before. (laughs) Again, not right or wrong, but, you know, you're watching him play and you're like, who's this guy? Yeah. Right? And and, and it was awesome. But when you're relying on that to kind of move you past, right, and move you through, and look, they were, you know, 35 or 40 seconds or whatever it was away from, you know, having a chance to play for a medal. Um, You know, it's hard to you know, hard to point fingers, but, you know, I, I was, you know, I love the way they built the team and you could obviously make, you know, nitpick nit, around the edges, but um, it proved that it worked. I mean, this team played with jam and they, they served the country well. And I think everyone was proud of them. And um, it was awesome to watch, you know, these young kids that you and I have watched since they were midget, you know, kind yeah. of step up on the world stage and not be afraid and be really proud to represent the country. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, it w- it was awesome. And I, I, you know, they, they lived up or exceeded expectations, um, you know, beating Canada, beating Germany, which was the defending silver medalist and had a lot of guys that had Olympic experience, which don't discount that even though Germany wasn't as offensively gifted. Um, they certainly had some, some, some players. And, you know, you mentioned it, Jake Sanderson not being available, I think was, was maybe what loomed largest over this team. They didn't have as much of a dynamic element on the back end. They didn't have that, that, that that guy that was going to take the puck up ice and just absolutely, you know, do something special at the other end. Um, Jake Sanderson has developed into that kind of player at, at North Dakota. It wasn't something that he necessarily did before. Um, we don't know uh, the nature of his injury. Uh, we do, do know that he was, you know, skated before the day before. My hope is that he'll come back to North Dakota and have a chance to make a run at, run at it with uh, North Dakota. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, he, you know, he, he gets popped for COVID, misses the first game, gets there in time for Canada, gets immediately injured, plays through the pain, goes through it, and then unfortunately doesn't get a chance to get back in there because of the way things ended. Um, Also, I just think, you know, the ability to close, and as you mentioned, manufacturing goals, the U.S. was so good in transition. They were a really good transitional team. However, in that game, in that Olympic game in particular, against Slovakia, how many times did they have sustained zone pressure outside of a power play? None. None. And that... And that is – so that's when you start to see the cracks show a little bit because they make these pretty plays in transition. But when you're not having sustained pressure, you know, that's, it's tough to win hockey games
0: that way. Well, and I think – I agree with you, Chris. And I think, too, you had, you know, the U.S.'s best players were playing above the level that they'll likely play a role at in the NHL, right? And, again, yeah. that's no slight on any of these guys. And players like Nick Abrazizi and Matty Beneers and Matthew Nyes and Brock Faber are players that NHL teams – you know, this will be controversial to some listeners I know, but our players at NHL teams need to win a championship, right? Like if right. you believe that elite talent cancels themselves out in when the chips are down to an extent, right? You need those high-end, you know, second, third-line role players to win it for you, right, or to, to, to assist in that effort in a big way. And when you have those guys playing kind of one step above where they would typically play, um, it's hard to call on them consistently to outperform and exceed. Yeah, Um, But in in terms of their own development, and, you know, look, we may never see any of those kids again. You hope you do. You may never see them again in a best-on-best Olympic tournament, but how happy are their NHL organizations for the steps they've taken in their development, um, you know, on a stage like that, and just the confidence that it gives them going back to college and making those decisions whether to sign or or stay for another year. Um, So, you know, certainly all in all, a net positive, you know, despite the fact that, they're coming home you know empty handed
1: yeah yeah empty empty handed but certainly not without the great experience that they just got and as you mentioned i think that the, for development purposes the their ability to show that hey the things that i do against my college opponents can work against professionals they might not work at the nhl level all the time but they 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 took another step the games were faster i mean that that china the china game the first few minutes china tried to run usa out of the building
0: out of the building <laughs> that and, and that was uh, nuts and, That's not how those college guys play. That is not college style, right? That is like game 38 to 50 of an AHL grind of the season, right? Where it's three and three and you can't do anything in the middle of the ice. They keep you to outside and they're banging you and they just want to get out of there. And you and I talked about this before, how rattled did they look going to the, going to the locker room for the first period? I mean, the D zone was a mess. It was like a hot potato.
1: It was, and they had know, to get rid of it of quick. It, yeah.
0: It was the, it was, I don't think they beat Canada without facing adversity like that right out of the gate to start the tournament. Exactly. Like and i thrown to the wolves. Um, right.
1: They didn't dictate. That was the, I think that was one of the few periods until the Slovakia game where they didn't dictate, they didn't dictate the pace. And I was like, Whoa, China is dictating this game physically. And that was a great learning experience. I think all the games that they played and really I, you know, until the, the go the, the game tying goal went in, I was thinking about how important that Slovakia game was for them because Slovakia had enough skill where if you made a mistake, they were going to make you pay. And they did, and they did twice. And then, um, you know, and I think that that is part of what led to the more conservative play down the stretch where they were like, you know, this team can hurt us if we make a mistake. And then I feel like you know, I, 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 mentioned this in the story on, on hockey sense uh, you know, the, the, the final recap of, of that game, which also includes player evaluations for the entire tournament um, for the U S for the, the NHL prospects. And one of the things it says like, you know, safe as death. And they did take a penalty. They did t- they had a power play late in that game where it was like four corners offense, where you're just trying to, to move the puck around. It was stationary there was never a threat for for a shot. There was one time Andy Mealy snuck in on the back door and the, the defenseman got a stick on it. You know, there are a lot of those little inches of plays, and it just goes to show you how hard it is to win. And I think that's really the lesson that I hope the players take away from it is that those games are won and lost in the margins. And that was one where they they simply you know they were one goal worse, and it was one goal in the shootout worse. And unfortunately, uh, five shooters. We could talk about that. But right. Uh, speaking of Matty Beniers, where was he? Um. Where but anyway, Gretzky in '98.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like was.
1: Yeah. It, so you know it's, it's uh yeah Gretzky yeah Gretzky in '98 exactly. It was, was Maddie Beniers, wing Gretzky same deal. Um. But yeah. So it was uh, yeah. That but it it was it was a very compelling tournament. Um, you know, they're still, the tournament is going on. The semifinals will be Sweden versus, uh, um, fin- or Sweden versus ROC and Finland versus Slovakia in the semis. And I think Finland's a bit of a wagon, uh, ROC looks there. They do not look good. Um, the, the, they, they, they had their hands full with Denmark twice. Actually, they played them twice and they had their hands. How about full Denmark, full by the way? Oh, Unbelievable. And I think you, you look at who are the guys driving the bus on that team, Franz Nielsen, Michael Bodker, guys that had a chance um, and, and their goaltender Sebastian Dom was unbelievable. Awesome, awesome tournament for him. Um, Love that story. Huge moment for their hockey growth. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there were a lot of good there and there still are a lot of good stories. One guy I want to talk to you about because now he's draft eligible. Um, and we're also, uh, there's another one in the USA that I want to talk to you about that you have a more intimate knowledge of because I want to explain to the readers uh, something that I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll let them in on a little secret. But um, the guy that I want, Yuri Slavkovsky for, for Slovakia was the, you know, the 17 year old phenom. Um, I ranked him 10th um, in my most recent draft rankings, which was a difficult decision. I had bumped him down because he has more goals in the Olympics, five. Then he has, he, he has four more goals than he has in, in Liga this year in Finland. He has four points total in Liga. Um, and I'm just like, you know, what's going on? Well, and he hasn't, it's not like he got a huge opportunity with Slovakia. You started on the fourth line, was getting third, basically like the equivalent of third line minutes. Um, and so, but I mean, to see a young guy come in like that, there are, the U19 guys that have scored five or more goals in an Olympics, Eric Lindros, Pat LaFontaine, David A. Jensen, who, who was played with LaFontaine and in, in, in that 84 Olympics and Yuri I. So I So I think and I he's, texted and he's your, 17. He's the youngest.
0: He's most, I, most points by you 17 or you. 18, I think right? I texted you last night when he scored that first bowl, like what a release that was. Whoa, unreal. That thing was in and out. I don't think Strauss man moved until it came out as five hole on the way out. Yeah, I think that you're right. Was, I mean, that puck was wired. Right. And yeah, yeah. you know, it's, not that they're the same kind of player, but I'm going to make a comparison that may be a, a bit of a leap of faith, but I think relates to elevating at a level, regardless of where you play, kind of during a year. Do you remember when Brad Lambert came to the World Junior or U18 when he was like 15 years old? for Finland Yeah, yeah. And was oh, the yeah, the Holenka. The Holenka. The Hlinka, Hlinka, like, yeah, yeah. like who's this guy flying around? He looks like the bubble hockey player just gets it and goes in a straight line. And he was unbelievable. And then you looked at his numbers against men and you're kind of like, huh?
1: Yeah, like what, exactly. what,
0: what was that? And so, you know, I don't have a, a full book on this player, right? I haven't been familiar with him until he got kind of going in the Olympics. But you watch a player like that and you're like, hey, what tool doesn't he possess to have, you know, super high upside as an NHL prospect? He seems like a big stout kid. He doesn't he doesn't labor around the ice. He kind of gets there quickly. Yeah, he's got hands. It, <laughs> it's on and off his stick in a flash. I mean, that's an NHL caliber release. Um, it was on display. Um, someone's going to get lucky grabbing him if he falls, you know,
1: and I don't think he will. I don't think he will now. I think there are a bunch of teams upset that he just, uh, he's like, well, it's not a secret anymore. Cause he was a guy that came into the year top five consideration. Um, but has slipped because, you know, and one of the things that I've been concerned about with his game, Matt, and I know you haven't had a chance to watch his league of games, but just what I've seen is a player that, hasn't figured out how to, you know, basically how to play at that level where, you know, he he didn't think he's not much of a play driver, he's he's really reliant on on line mates. He and I think into some degree here, he's a finisher more than he is a driver. Um and and that's and that's fine. You can be that especially with his skill set. Um, you know, cause if you, every team needs finishers too, they don't need everybody to be a driver. So, well, yeah,
0: I think you made, you made a great point too. And, you know, not, not, not to beat a dead elephant here, but if you look at, um, if you look at a guy like Maury Sider in his draft year, right. Who is now turning out to look like one of the smartest picks, you know, in, in that draft, he's just dominating the blue line for Detroit. I remember the chatter going around the independent circles that I think the guy had like five points in Mannheim uh in his draft year playing against yeah. men, right? Yeah. Right. And right. so you just don't know. I mean, there's so much more, so many more layers than just the stat line and just the fact that he's out there commanding, you know, and and, and holding his own regardless of production at that level, right? You put him best on best in the age group and, and you see what happens. And um, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head that, you know, hey, who you know, you want to see production because you want to be you want to have someone that's involved in the game and could be a driver of, of play. But, you know, five goals in the Olympics for a 17 year old is, is out of control and it's great company. And it shouldn't be lost on people that, you know, hey, you don't have to light it up to make an impact. And, um, you know, cider is a perfect example of that.
1: Yeah. And sometimes, you know, we, we try not to overvalue small samples, but at the same time, can't have they ever proved it at any point in time? And you can say now for your eyes, Slavkovsky, he has. Um, oh, yeah. And this is a guy that's not going to get the world under 18s this year because Slovakia didn't qualify. So, yeah. you know, so there that's, that's where we're at with, with, with him and, and Simon, unfortunately Simon Nemitz did not see the ice in his last two games. Um, and uh, you know, he's a, he's a 17 year old that I actually have ahead of Slavkovsky on my draft board and may keep him there, um, you know, based on, but, but I think you you have to go back and, and kind of reevaluate. But the other guy that I wanted to talk about before we move on from Olympic talk, because we had this conversation many times last year and if you're ever wondering, sometimes those of us in the independent circles, we all have our sources. We all have other people that we talk to. but Matt Matty's a guy I talk to pretty regularly Um, when I'm especially when I'm debating things. Like so if you saw my draft rankings, you saw that Logan Cooley was ahead of Shane Wright, who was one of the only sounding boards that I used was was Matt Moran here because we I was like, this here's I'm this is what I'm thinking this. And it wasn't that Matt drove me one way or another. He was just he listened and he and he he offered some some uh, differing points at times but the guy that you, you were all over last year. I give you all the credit in the world for this one is, is Matthew Nyes, And you, you thought he was a first round caliber talent. Um, and I was slow to get there just like, I didn't listen to you on Shane Pinto. I didn't listen to you as much on, on Shane. So that's the other thing. We're friends, but like, I, I still have to have my own opinions. Right. So, but I really respect Matt's because he's, he's so much more, he's usually right more than he is wrong. And, um, what was it about Matthew Nyes' game in his draft year and in really in the years that you had seen him pre, prior to his draft year that made you believe that, that he was what we're
0: seeing now? Yeah, it was awesome to be a part of the staff in Tri-City that, uh, that drafted Matthew um, in the Futures draft. He, um, he actually played U15 and U16 that year uh, for Shane Doan um, mm-hmm. at the Arizona Junior Coyotes and Josh Doan, Shane's son, who was a high pick as well. You know, was on that team, and um, you know, Matthew's a big kid, and he kind of always has been. And and right or wrong, you're always drawn to the big guys at that age, usually because of what they don't do. They're very conspicuous by you know just their presence when they're not producing. You're like, hey, this guy's six six, you know, or or whatever. What's he doing out there? He's not hitting anybody. He's never finding the sheet. Um, You know, and Matthew was was kind of the opposite. We saw him at a showcase you know, out east a handful of times and, and, and followed him, you know, throughout the year. And, you know, he's a real strong link player. He's a connector. He played up and down the lineup. He played in all situations, um, just a lot of little things. He, he didn't blow you away with his speed. He had a lot of skill. He could really shoot the puck, um, but he had really great dexterity and control of his body for a big guy. He was coordinated. He was mature. Um, his body control was really good. Um, you know, body language was strong. And, you know, there's a kid that, um, you know, certainly had a lot of upside for the intangibles, the size and the way that we felt, you know, he thought the game, um, you know, and he was, he was more involved at, than not. And, um, you know, the USHL draft is is funny. He was a futures draft pick, um, you know, and then, you know, the USA, you know, runs their evaluation and they pick their their 25 for the program. And then all the teams jump into this tender frenzy, which eliminates your first or second round pick. And so I think Matthew went 38 to us, but he was probably the 25th actual, like names selected and there's just so many kids every year, right. That, um, you know, team falls in love with and they can get them kind of right away and there's going to come in. And what was awesome about, you know, Matthew and look, I'm, I was zero part of his development at all. I was one piece of a, of a room of seven eight of us in tri city that said it's crazy that he's still on the board. And, and if he's there, he should take him. He was actually the third pick of our draft, uh, between a, a pick at three and two tenders. Wow. Um, so we were, we were excited to get him, but what was awesome just kind of being on the fringe of watching him you know, matriculate to the USHL was that he really took his time. And so many kids now are in a hurry to commit right away and they'll only go to a team that's gonna let them play right away. He went back to Phoenix, um, you know, he came to camp, had a shot, went back to Phoenix, came up during the year, once or twice, um, waited a year for his commitment to the University of Minnesota, touched the puck a lot and was just awesome. And then when he got to Tri city, um, you know, took advantage of another great opportunity that was there for him. I think he ended up making the all rookie team as the first year player, um, you know, Anthony Noreen did an amazing job, you know, with him there, their, their styles kind of meshed and, um, you know, really pumped to see that he's, you know, taking advantage of everything that was put in front of him development wise to, to be able to go to Minnesota and have a great year statistically, um, you know in a league that's hard for young people to score in and you know it was awesome in his early days at the World Juniors before that got shut down thank you COVID song and uh, <laughs> you know and then he was one of the best players in the tournament in, in the Olympics but um, you know I don't think anybody in the room when when Tri-City took him thought he was going to be you know this budding you know superstar that the Leafs got first round value for in the middle of the second um, and certainly has outplayed his draft positioning but you know, it's just more of a classic story of saying, I don't know what it is about this guy because there's nothing that he does exceptionally awesome, but he just does everything really, really well. And you're making a directional bet on his ability to figure it out.
1: Yeah, and, um, he, and he's he's figuring, he's in the process of figuring it out. I mean, he has been a physically dominant power forward at Minnesota. He's 57th overall, the Leafs got him 57th overall. And, and that's a team that has has repeatedly gotten good value in the second round when they don't have first round draft picks when they don't have, you know, when they don't have those guys and you think about you know, Nick Robertson, who still has a ways to go and he's been injured and things, you got to get, you know, his development under control. Um, but, you know, had a, had a tremendous junior career. And now Matthew Nyes, who's on, on the different side of the size spectrum. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of messages now saying, Hey, do you think Nyes is going to sign after the season? I think it would like, be
0: crazy. I think he'd be crazy to sign. I,
1: yeah. I, I think I, I agree. I think, you know, I, but it is interesting. Right. But like you wouldn't oh. have, you wouldn't have thought that coming into this season. No, ch- um, no chance. No yeah, chance. And I yeah. think that
0: he is, he is like a caricature of a modern NHL general managers, like dream player. Right. Absolutely. I'm a yeah. diehard Washington Capitals fan and will gladly stand for Tom Wilson for the rest of my life. Um, every team hates him unless you have them. How many general managers would want a Tom Wilson? I'm not saying that's what Matthew is, but he's, a big, powerful, strong skating, skilled guy. He's not just there to blow you out of the building, with right? Exactly. The are. he is like a total package type player that teams are going to covet. And should he, um, you know, should he choose to not sign and drag it out the four years, right, and extend and and and, and pick his place? I bet you there's 32 teams in the league that would offer him whatever yeah, he wanted to come. Exactly. Who would want a guy like that? You know, in their you know in their organization. Right, and and don't give Maple Leafs
1: fans any heart attacks with that that scenario there, uh, with uh, staying for four years. But you're right, in that scenario, he would. Um, you know, there there were a couple of you know free agents for college free agents that were on Team USA as well. With with Ben Myers, I think he's going to be a guy that is just like that, where he's going to be able to not quite pick his spot, but but I'd say that there's, you know, I'd, I'd bet seventy five percent of the NHL teams are going to be in and, and and make the call at least um, oh. to get him.
0: Yeah. And it's all about opportunity too. And timing, like there's, there are schools of thought out there that an organization like the Leafs or the Rangers or Vegas, even to an extent, teams are going to go all in every year to do it are not the best places to get drafted to, because if you're not doing it super quick, your chance of making it is, is really low. But given COVID's impact on the salary cap, right. And the cost of replacement players right? Is a Matthew Nye, is it, is, is it unrealistic to think that at a entry-level deal, he can jump in and play a meaningful role on the third line for a Leafs team that's in it every year that really can't do much, right? And so right. he provides a significant savings, but maybe not a significant discount and ability, um, you know, to get there. And if, if, you know, that management staff, you know, they know what they're doing, that's the pitch, that's the sell. It's like, hey, you're going to play right away because of your number.
1: Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. So, Yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how teams use that and, and, and the different players that have worked out and haven't worked out. Um, There have been some no doubters that you would say, or, or perceive no doubters that uh, didn't, didn't really pan out at all. And then there have been guys that fly under the radar and and win Stanley cups and, and become missing pieces to teams. and, you know, there's all sorts of different stories like that out there. But um, I do want to move on because we've got a lot to get to. And, and one of the things I, I, I enjoy about you, Matt, and when we're talking is that you're a tremendous storyteller. Um, and uh, we've talked a little bit about development process. We've talked a little bit about, um, you know, just evaluation and, and things like that. But when you're in a junior, when you're working for a junior organization, there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. I mean, in, that, in junior hockey, everything happens behind the scenes because there's not exactly a a, a full on entertainment apparatus around the league to, to showcase it. If there was, I think if we did like an F1 drive to survive style thing, um, it would be a runaway success because of the crazy stuff that, that, that goes on in the various unintentionally comedic things that happen in junior hockey. Um, But I was just wondering, you know, for, for, for you, what is, what is something that kind of is one thing that kind of happens behind the scenes in junior hockey that um, whether it's in the OHL, the USHL or whatever, that, that, you know, people certainly wouldn't know about and that you find particularly either fascinating or comical or both.
0: And there's so much that's probably not meant for public airwaves in this (laughs) world Uh, for the longevity of hockey sense with Chris Peters. But um, you know, it really is. Uh, it really is kind of all hands on deck, rowing in the same direction. And you know, one of the things I didn't mention just about scouting for junior right before is everyone knows the players, and the player universe is so big. But it, your real edge in, in that part of the business is really just information and trafficking and information and relationships. And you know, a lot of these junior teams, most of these junior teams, um, are so budget constrained, and scouting staffs are small. And players or, you know, personnel, guys and gals wear a lot of hats. And, you know, they're the, you know, they're organizing the charity work at the school, but they're also doing stats during the game and clipping video. There's a lot of lifting that goes on behind the scenes. And I'll caveat, I think you're trying to peel a story out of me from a Chicago Steel training camp. Um, And I'll, I'll caveat, I'll caveat this by saying that I worked at the Chicago Steel long before what they've become now, which is the model franchise, you know, in in U.S. junior hockey, Um, you know, Larry Robbins bought the team from the group that we operated for um, a handful of years ago, and they've done an amazing job just investing, you know, both in their organization and the league as a whole. And it's turned the USHL uh, to, it's taken the USHL to an entirely new level. I was fortunate enough to spend, you know, part of the first season with that ownership group and, you know, got a peek under the hood as to how they were going to disrupt, you know, just the, what was, you know, again, the art of the possible, in junior hockey and they've done it, um, you know, in an amazing way. And they've moved a lot of people on, which is awesome. But that is a far cry from the Chicago Steel that uh, a lot of your close personal friends, Chris and I, you know, worked for in the past. And, um, you know, there's so many things. I mean, we submitted a player roster to the league without Christian Dvorak protected on it uh, the day before the season started by accident. Uh, We had an assistant general manager, and I can say his name because he's out of the game. I'm probably not listening to this. Uh, We called him Neil Mania. Uh, who had to eat the blame for sending in the wrong sheet to the league. Um, And uh, Judd Brackett, who's now the head scout of the Minnesota wild was working for Indiana at the time and and, uh, claimed him and was kind enough to trade us him back to us, uh, you know, for, for, for peanuts. But um, you know, that was more of a, an internal calamity, but uh, maybe the greatest story in the USHL, again, that's meant for public consumption. So, um, this was 2011 or twelve. and for for the listeners who may not know how player procurement works in the USHL, there's two days of drafts. The first day is a futures draft, which is one birth year. It's t- sixteen year olds. And then the second day is the phase two draft. It's like six thousand rounds long. It takes twenty hours. Um, and you're just throwing darts by the end of it. it's it's a slog. But right after that, everybody rushes to fill their camp list for their main camp in the summer, the drafts in April, and you're trying to secure, you know 80 to 100 players to come to your main camp in the summer and you know maybe compete for four or five spots but it's great exposure to a bunch of college coaches and nhl scouts and stuff and in chicago where you know junior hockey competes in the fall and the winter against so many great high school sporting events basketball and football and things like that we did benefit from having so much youth hockey around the area tons of tier one teams and people from wisconsin and other places so we could usually fill a camp you know pretty quickly and 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 with with good quality players. And, you know, so we have this form template that gets ready to go out and it says, Hey, we had our eye on you for the draft and blah, blah, blah. We're really, you know, thrilled to be able to invite you to this camp. Uh, Here are the dates and it's 500 bucks. And, you know, teams rely on a full camp because it's like their stick budget for the year. It's a big part of their operating budget. Um, You know, when the gate is small, like it was at Chicago, right? You're doing anything (laughs) you can. You'll do three camps if you could. And so, we're all uh, we're all building the list together, and the second the draft's over, it's like mad dash to press send. You know, dial it forward to camp, and we're like, oh wow! And I, I I can't say the player's name because you know there's a chance he may still be listening, and there's multiple of them now that uh, you'll you'll hear the story. But um, we're all excited. That this one particular local player came. We're like, wow, we can't believe he signed up. You know, so fast. And we're sitting up in the box watching the first scrimmage, and I called over one of the administrative people in the organization, I'm like, Hey, this, this roster's wrong. There's no way that Callahan is wearing number 14. Like something's off here. Or did the teams get mixed up or is his jersey wrong? Like he, and we're looking over at coach and Mac and I'm like, Hey, Callahan looks awful today. What is going on here? And so at the intermission of the first game, RJ Enga, who's now at St. Cloud comes bombing up to the box and he's like, guys, we got a big problem. He goes, I pulled 14 over after his first three shifts. He's wearing the full, you know, iTech fishbowl. He's got the goggles on underneath. And this kid is, he's tripod on ice and he is just furnace baits on the bench, just sucking wind. And he's like, is everything all right, man? And the kid turns around and he goes, coach, I got a lot of stuff to work on. So we're dying. To- <laughs> they tell us the story. And it, turn- it turns out in our rush to fill camp, we invited the wrong John Callahan. There was another John Callahan in Chicago in our database who played single A midget hockey, who thought he could lace him up with the Chicago Steel for four days in camp and it was the wrong kid. That was that's so we,
1: that's like if I would have gotten invited. So, exactly. So we yeah. pulled
0: him in, we pulled him in after the first game and talked to his parents. We're like, hey, you know, we didn't mean to do this. You know, to you, you're welcome to stay. We'll give you your money back. I mean, we were I mean, we were just dying. It's like, what else could, you know, go wrong? You work so hard to to do this all year. And there are a lot of people in that room that are now, you know, prominently featured in NHL jobs that, uh, that were just, I mean, just keeled over laughing when we found out we invited the wrong kid. And and yeah, team. yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, that's, and, and and that's the thing is it is not easy to do this. These are, these jobs are very difficult to do. And those and you mistakes, take the word,
0: you, you take the word of a lot of people that, you know, just building, you know, relationships in the game. And it's always, you know, hey, I got this sleeper Euro that wants to come over. And then you go pick him up from the airport and he's standing outside and like cut off jeans, smoking a cigarette, drinking a soda. And you're like, oh, <laughs> and he's you're like, like 14 no, years old. <laughs> what, am, what am I gonna do with this guy? And then you get to the hotel and he asks for a smoking room. And then you're calling the NHL guy back. You're like, what did you do to me that? And then you know, so I mean the 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 road is littered with with stories like that. And um anything to get an edge i guess but that was a particularly memorable uh, calamity from uh,
1: our time uh, that is that uh, the is
0: the nine-win chicago steel
1: oh man yeah well yep they 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 had to take they had to have moments like that so they could rise uh to what yeah. they are today and certainly the chicago steel one of the model franchises of junior hockey in north america quite frankly um in a lot of different ways but uh, one, one other thing, and then I want to get to some, uh, NHL talk as well, because we're closing in the trade deadlines coming up. I know that you're always dialed in on that. You love talking, uh, we talk NHL all the time, um, which we will get to in just a minute. But, um, is there one player that stands out to you in terms of your personal views of a player where you were just like, Whoa, this is, this is, this, this dude is different. He is special. Like, you know, we talked about the special earlier, but. Was there, a, was there a guy that you felt like when you saw him play um, as whatever, a 15-year-old or, or something like that, that you're just like, this is, this is unbelievable? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's two for me that really, like, blew you away in terms of, like, what else is out there. Right? Yeah. Um, Brennan Carlo, when he played for the Colorado Thunderbirds U16 team before going to the Western League, was unbelievable. He had already signed and was playing U16 hockey before going to, I think, Tri-City maybe um, mm-hmm. in the Western League. Yeah. Um, yes, Tri-City. was absolutely unstoppable, like unstoppable. He was amazing, and that team was a wagon. He was just, like, head and shoulders above everybody else and, you know, no surprise that he's – I don't know if he was a first-rounder, but he was no, a second. second-round pick, and he played in the World Junior and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, And yeah. So Well, he really elevated the bar in terms of, you know, Holy smokes, like there's 15 and 16 year olds out there that are capable of doing this. And, you know, no surprise that he's had the success that he's had. Um, and in terms of just like knock your socks off skill, uh, Dylan Larkin was maybe one of the best midget hockey players I've ever seen. Um, you know, on a, on a loaded team, he broke his leg in his U 16 year. Um, and, you know, it was, was a lot to make the NTDP, but what that kid was able to do at a young age was was just out of this world. Um, you know, again, and, and, and no surprise that uh, that he is where he is now. But um, yeah, every absolutely. once in a while you see someone like that, that, that really just blows your cap back. And it was really fun to be able to go to games in Erie and watch McDavid play. Um, you know, we had Josh Hosang in Windsor, who was, you know, just an absolute, you know, entertainment every time he touched the ice. Um, You know, Jeremy Bracco was a fun major player to watch with that, you know, wing skating styler or whatever he did. And um, and we had Charlie McAvoy on some teams around here. Um, You know, that's a great story. He was actually not included on the first round of national team development program invites. And he was at the OHL Cup with us and uh, another player who was slated to go to the camp, broke his ankle in the semifinal game and couldn't go. And, uh, the head of the program was there and said, well, Hey, maybe Chuck should come in and, and fill in. And he's turned into what he's turned into, uh, Unbelievable. you yeah. know, with, with that, with that small sliver of opportunity. And, um, you know, you kind of always knew it, you know, with him that he was just going to be different. Um, yeah. And
1: he's a special, he's special, not just in his on ice component, but his off ice as well. And I've just heard so many people who have either taken visits with him or were trying to recruit him to school. And you know, they're just like, this is a guy that, you know, he's just genuine. He takes everything in. He he keeps an open mind and, and he, and he's just one of the, just a respectful, good human being. He's
0: awesome. Yeah. He's an awesome kid. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, let's get to some NHL talk because you are um dialed in on that as, as a fan, but also just kind of with your, when you have institutional knowledge of scouting and of, you know, you've come up with a lot of people, you mentioned guys like, like Judd Brackett and there's the, you know, others that you've interacted with over time in in the ushl that are now at, at nhl jobs but i mean i think this trade deadline at least the way that it's setting up right now could be one of the more active we've had in in quite some time and you think about some of the names and obviously we already saw tyler to fully move but then there's you know the possibility of a mark andre flurry trade the possibility of Claude Giroux going somewhere the possibility of of really any anything else where's what are the Blackhawks going to do? Are they going to strip it down? Is, is Patrick Kane in the mix? I've, we, we started hearing Patrick Kane trade rumors now. So, I mean, just for you as, as you know, as an outside observer, you know, what, what are some of the things that you're looking for uh, to see in this, in this, in this trade deadline and, and and maybe some of the names that you're most intrigued by?
0: Yeah. I, I love the business of the league. I think, um, you know, getting involved in the personnel side, you know, and then taking a step back just for real life allows you to really appreciate um you know, the business of the league a little bit more. And to me, it's more fun to kind of traffic in information and rumors around things that are going on than it is to, you know, chip away and find guys to an extent. But um, this is definitely going to be a fascinating one. And I think a lot of it is because of the parity between probably four or five teams in each in each conference. Um, you know, there's a real, you know, Minnesota is going to want to load up. Colorado's going to want to load up. You know, Vegas is always going to load up, although they probably already did it with Eichel. Um, with what it's going to take to acquire a Claude Giroux or anyone from Montreal or a Pat Kane, even if Chicago decides to blow it up, there's a chance that you can lose in the second round. Right. right? right. So if you're Colorado and the asking price from everyone is Newhook plus, and he's a big part of their future because you have to pay McKinnon and you're probably not going to be able to keep someone else, is Alex Newhook worth a month of Claude Giroux to lose in the second round? Right. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, that's why Joe Sackick makes the big bucks and we're on a podcast. And so um, <laughs> but it's exciting to figure, you know, that stuff out. And you look at a team like Carolina, like they're really close. And I've heard coming out of their meetings that their directive was at any price, right? We will win. This is our year at any cost. And so what, is, what does that mean? That guy will spend money. He's proven it. He's not shy about anything. Um, but where, you know, what can they shake loose and, and, and what are they willing to give up? You're giving up a lot of future, for a lot of future because they've got a really young team um you know they're going to want to ride that that you know to depth and experience you know in the playoffs but um you know i think it starts and stops with with claude Giroux here in philly um who if he's the if he's the log jam to all these trades getting done because of his cap hit he's going to have to be a deadline day deal right yeah yeah so you saw color to your to your point Calgary you know, goes and gets to Foley. Well, what's the second derivative of that? That means they're probably holding on to Johnny Goudreau. right? right. And he's an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. There's been chatter for years that he's not thrilled about the situation there, and he wants to come closer to the East Coast where he's from, you know, in New Jersey, and maybe it's Philly or Boston where he played college or New Jersey or the Rangers or whatever it is. But they go out and get a Tyler Foley and give up a lot of future for it. They're not going to trade Johnny Udrow. They'll let him walk for nothing. It's kind of like what Columbus did, right, when they went all in and beat Tampa. And they held on to all those players that left them in the summer, right? And they got nothing back. But right. you owe that to the players in the room. They don't care about picks.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Right. And so that's kind of turned Calgary, and that's taken one guy who I thought would have moved completely off the market, right? Right, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Philly's, been, complete, Philly's been completely hamstrung with injuries all year long. I think they had 19 players in COVID protocol. No Hayes. Uh, Ryan Ellis has only played four games. Bristol Lyons hurt again. Uh, Joel Farabee's missed the majority of the season. They've got a bunch of American league call-ups, you know, kind of playing spot duty, right. You know, how do you, how do you make an assessment if they're real sellers or not? Uh, But you know, you can get some future for Claude Giroux and he can sign here in the summer. You got to move them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think Philly is one of the most fascinating ones. One of the teams that you mentioned that I think is, is especially fascinating is Minnesota because you look at them right now and then they've got all that dead cap space next year on the Parisian and Suter buyouts that is going to absolutely hamstring them in a way, Um, you know, that, that I think is going to be pretty, could be, could potentially be pretty devastating, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, but, but they're also so good right now. I mean, Matt Boldy has come in and, and provided to get another breath of fresh air. Caprizov has been uh all world, you know, in, in the way that he's played. Kevin Fiala is off the schneid and, you know, they've got all these guys that they can play, but, They're still, you know, can you, can you trust them? Can you trust them the whole, the whole way? Does that team look like a team that's going to win more than two rounds? I mean, that's the team that struggled to get out of the first round for a long time.
0: It's the same thing. It's the same thing as the Leafs, right? Right. uh, And and Minnesota's maybe the most fun team to watch in the league for me. Right now, right now. Yeah. They're just exciting. And, um, you know, you and I both have some friends there and so it's fun to root for their success. And, um, you know, it's great that 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 it's happening under their watch, which is awesome. But you know, for years we would always say like something's just wrong in the water there, right? And you know, they've got a, they've got the ability to absorb a big, a big cap hit, right? And you wonder for this year, right? And so you wonder if a guy like Phil Kessel makes sense there, like uh, a secondary or tertiary scoring option who's, you know, Phoenix will get rid of him for anything. Um, you know, they probably don't need a Jacob Chickering. They're not gonna, I don't know what they would do with uh with a Claude Giroux. Um you know, so where do they go is fascinating to your point next year. They're not going to be able to do much. Um, right. Right. Well, and the other that thing that, too, that dead cap next year starts in them at, I mean, I think they're at 12 million. of dead yeah, cap it's, it's,
1: it's unbelievable. Like, and I got to say, Bill Garen making that decision was one of the gutsiest calls I've but seen. Look what it,
0: but look what it did to his team. Man. 100%. They can, they can manage around that. And if you believe over time that the cap's going to increase even ratably. A little bit, right? Yeah, um, you know, once COVID, knock on wood, calms down, right? And and you're seeing teams get a little bit more creative now, like the NBA used to, right? Or, or still does with three team. And I bet you we could see a four team trade. Yeah, right? absolutely. There's, absolutely. So many, there's so many teams this year that just aren't spending money. Buffalo has 36 million in cap space, right? And so if you can, if you, you can, can, can buy draft picks that way, you can buy draft. You can buy and sell draft. Picks, yeah, right. I mean, yep. you can be a real facilitator and enable one of these fringe teams that can't like how would Colorado go get Pat Kane? Right. Yeah. They need a Buffalo. They need a Phoenix. They need an Anaheim in Ottawa even to step up and do something. Right. And right. So these well, teams by the way, if I were play. Buffalo
1: though, if I were Buffalo though and I would like, yes, I will do the three team trade, just give us Patrick Kane. And then, then they don't complete the third leg of that trade. That's, that's a, Oops, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. No take backs. Uh, oh, I don't think, this? not sure. Not sure. Yeah. Not sure. That's a, uh, Illegal, but, but yeah, but you no. know, but I, and not only that, yeah, I completely agree managing around that cap. The thing that the, that the wild that it's going to make things a little tricky for them is that their, their most valuable assets are prospects. It's Marco Rossi, it's Kalen Addison, it's players like that, who you are going to need desperately next year when that dead, that, that dead money is on your cap right. because you need them on entry level contracts.
0: And, um and, and I'm, so, yeah, it's, but I'm really interested too, to see like, a team like Montreal that made a midseason move in the front office, right? Yeah. You have no, I mean, they've got, they've got some big ticket guys relatively speaking that that new management group may not think is a part of the future though. Right. Right. Like would you take Joel Armia for three more years at three, four? Like it's, it's hard to evaluate Montreal this year because they've been hampered by injury and they're bad. Um, but they could unload some of Like he could be a great, deadline edition or someone like a, i know they just signed josh anderson with that big ticket but like what do you think minnesota would do for a guy like josh anderson
1: yeah no kidding there's so many right. options there's so many options out there and that's what i think is going to make it really fascinating I, you know i still wonder what is you know what is ultimately mark andre fleury going to agree to you know we've heard a lot about the the capitals and, and you being a big caps fan i mean it'd be an a, interesting to see him go into that rivalry on the opposite side
0: i've heard um, he said no to a handful of deals there. yeah no. I
1: and yeah probably he probably has and and that's and assess- he he's earned that right too you're in the contract you're in the opportunity and you know i think that when he was acquired by the blackhawks they had basically said here you know here's here's what we're going to do and this is what we think we can be and they went out and got seth jones and jake mccabe and caleb jones and uh, a whole bunch of other people and it has not worked at all so no, it-
0: You know my biggest my biggest question mark is going to be like I love watching Florida, right? That group that group you know you're always you're always tempted by the art you know by the the intrigue of like well what if we what if we tinker, and I watch this team and say they don't need anything, no right? And is it worth being active for the sake of being active to show that you're contending and competing versus just believing in the group that you have like day one and right. going. So they've got some space, um, but, you know, I can see them, you know, sitting tighter going all in for a guy like Drew for secondary scoring. Right. They're yeah. going to be, to me, they're going to be the most fascinating. Team.
1: Yeah. I, I can't wait to see it. And I'm, I'm a really, I'm always intrigued to see what Bill Zito is going to do there. I think he's a really clever general manager and has done a lot of interesting things there with that team Um, has been aggressive. You know, how, how, how much more aggressive can you get? And, and when you, when you're this, when you're tasting it, because they should be tasting it. They, they, they are that good. When you have Huberto and and Barkov and when you've got Ekblad playing at a high level, when you've got Bobrovsky clicking on all cylinders, you've got to be aggressive. And, and, you know, that's what, what is the chance? What does a Stanley cup do to that market? You know, you, just, you, you don't trade,
0: know. Would you put Spencer Knight in a Jacob chicken trade?
1: Uh, personally? No, but at the same time, like, yeah, I don't, I, I would rather if I'm, if I'm Arizona, I, I, I might do that deal straight up to right. be completely honest with you. Um, but if I'm Florida, I, I need that insurance policy because I can't trust that Sergey Barovsky is going to be this for forever. And it wasn't a deal that Bill Zito signed him to. So, you know, so that's the other thing, but yeah, that, those, these are the hypotheticals that that are going to be played out for these next five weeks or so um, or not even four weeks, you know, where we're, 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 we're dealing with this, but.
0: Well, and there's, there's some teams in the West, I think that could potentially load up and miss the playoffs. Oh, like what if Edmonton goes out and they, you know, early in the year when they were blowing everybody out of the building. It was like, oh, they're just going to get flurry at the deadline <laughs> and they're going to win the Stanley Cup. And now they may still go get flurry and they could miss the playoffs.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I'm Mark Andre Flurry, I'm my, the writing's on the wall there. I'm saying, "Ah, pass. I will pass." Um, no thank you. No thank you very much. Um, but yeah, so But these are all the types of things that we're going to be talking about and 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 maddie i mean like this is why this is why i enjoy talking to you because we always have these 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 wide ranging meandering conversations that'll hit like 40 different topics and we didn't even get into the life stuff because maddie is also my fashion consultant so um and and i appreciate that uh his his uh his tastes are a little richer than mine and on a journalist's budget uh you know, I, 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 maybe need to get in the private equity game here. Uh, if, um, if I'm really gonna, if I'm really gonna open up the wardrobe, but, uh, but yeah, but thank you for operating your
0: quarter zips one day at a time.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Maddie. And so, uh, but before I let you go, just one last, uh, one last thing. I mean, like, you know, this is, uh, this is this is a great time of year uh, as we get into the trade deadline we're gonna get into the college hockey playoffs we're gonna get into you know the the memorial Cup is now um named you do have a memorial cup ring with the windsor Spitfires thank you very much um and uh, that's pretty cool but i i mean just in terms of the the spring and when when we when we hit the spring here in the hockey season i mean is there anything better than this time right now I mean like no. where you go into the trade like you come out of the trade deadline even. Like that sets it up for the rest, of it. and then it's it's all it's all systems go. And even though we've been through COVID and everything else, it looks like everybody's going to find a way to finish their season this year.
0: Yeah, it's awesome, and you really feel for all the players, uh, particularly in the Ontario Hockey League from last year, that had their season taken away from them. Right. Um, you know. You know. There, there's the health and safety aspect of all of this, but you forget that these are these are young men. They're 16 to 20 years old um you know that are learning to be you know adults on their own and and you know they need outlets and releases in life just like you know just like we do and you know they dive two feet into this passion um you know to make it to the nhl and and they get it stripped away from them and they're far away from home and um you know you're just so happy that that all these young people can continue to pursue you know their life dream it's awesome to watch and you know you pop around the rinks here you know, whether it's, you know, in an NHL game down below after or a junior game or, you know, a youth game. And it's just, it's so great to see everyone just like having fun again, right. It's like people kind of forgot what it was like to have, you know, the freedoms that we do, um, you know, not to get, you know, hyper-political, but it, it, it's great that um, they're kind of letting people make their own decisions. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's just super rewarding and, and you're glad for everyone that puts in all the time and effort. And, you know, again, you know, there's no OHL hockey, then, you know, people that make their livelihood, you know, scouting the game like you guys and, and a lot of our friends, you know, that work in that league are, are impacted by it as well. And so, uh, the return to normalcy, you know, or quote unquote normalcy has been outstanding and, and overdue. And it really is the best time of the year. And, and, um, you know, you forget sometimes that it is a game and, you know, we, we like to chew the fat and, you know, talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just really cool to see everything, you know, back and, you know, the Olympics, it was, it was awesome to watch these kids chase it. But, you know, I think everyone was really bummed we couldn't get best on best. And so hopefully there's some some good news about a World Cup or something like that. And um, I think I texted you earlier, too. I mean, even just tonight, I think there's six of maybe the best NHL games of the year tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just an awesome time to be, you know, involved in the game of hockey. And, um, you know, super, uh, super happy that uh, you asked me to be on this today.
1: Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you coming on so that we could have one of our many conversations uh, verbally as opposed to just through uh, texting and Gchat and whatever else we do. But but yeah, but Matt, you, you've always been a great friend and, and, and provide such great insights. And, and I'm glad that you were able to provide some of that for our listeners. Uh, folks, follow him on Twitter, at MattyMo26. That's, uh, that's where you can find some of his uh, lyrical stylings and uh, uh, hot tweets.
0: So, that comes with that's a hot that's a that comes with uh with a warning. I think if everyone back that, in the game on a real level, I'd have to delete that Twitter account. But um <laughs> it's fun to uh it's fun to, to chew it with these guys every once in a while.
1: Yeah, every once in a while he's he likes to mix it up too. So but yeah, but Maddie, no, thank no you. No fear. No fear, no, but I I had to give you the plug and, and also one thing, one thing before you go, I just remember too is um I remember the the first time that 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 I was like Okay, this guy. I need to. I need to talk to him more. And that was when he's like, "Hey, uh, hey, 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 Seeps. Uh, y- there's this. There's this kid at at uh, at, at Union, and uh, he's having an incredible season. You got to know him. His name is Shane Gostis Bear. And this was over text. So I'm reading this. And I was like, "This is this a joke? Because when you read Gostis Bear on it, 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 B here, essentially, you're like, "What? And so I start watching him. And he happened to have a game on, I think ESPNU, like that that very weekend. You're like, watch him, and I was like, oh my gosh. And I, I, coach Tim Taylor was working for USA Hockey at the time, um, for their World Junior team. I was like, have you seen this kid yet? I texted him. I was like, any, any, and he, he had, and he had, and he's like, he's in the mix. And I was like, oh okay. So, so Maddie, you were that was the hot tip from what was he at South Kent or uh... he was at South Kent? Yeah, and, yeah. So
0: uh, Shane was. Uh... He was an awesome prep and, and, and college player and uh, became a good buddy when he came to Philly. We played a bunch of golf together in the summers and, you know, glad that he's gotten an opportunity to continue his career in, in Phoenix. And, um, you know, he's just a super good dude that, you know, came from a non-traditional market and, and, you know, and made it, you know, on his own just through hard work. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean it, i forgot
1: yeah, about that yeah yeah but that was one where i was just like you know because like that's the thing when you start meeting people and you and like you said you might get a guy that that recommends this uh, you know this this uh 15 year old russian who's like on a pack a day habit and you're and you know so but but yeah but so you have to kind of take people at their word and and then see if it works and right, Yeah. Uh, for every
0: for every menthols and caviar kid you get a kid <laughs> like ghost right yeah so, exactly yeah um, the ghost
1: the ghost bear and
0: yeah. That's yeah, what I and, said before. It's all about trafficking and information.
1: Yeah, right. exactly. And that was a, that was a hot tip that you gave me back when I was at United States of hockey. So uh, I, I, I thank you for that, but yeah, but, but yeah, but that, that just goes to show. And, and Maddie is uh, often uh, he, he's got a lot of great insights and, and certainly uh, um, yeah. I, I thank you so much for coming on here and, and, and us being able to have this conversation uh, for an audience. So, so thanks a lot, Maddie. Yeah. Thank you. Chiefs. We'll talk to you soon, brother. Once again, my thanks to Matt Moran for joining me on the podcast this week. And my thanks to you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that uh that unique conversation with uh with a real character and, and a guy that uh you know certainly is not gonna be uh in the spotlight a lot, but but somebody that I talked to quite a bit, and I thought that, hey, let's let's bring some of those conversations to you, the listeners, and I hope you liked it. If you didn't, let me know. If you did, definitely let me know. And also leave a rating and a review for this podcast if you could. It would be so much. Uh, so helpful to getting the word out about the podcast as we continue to get it going. We'll have so much more to talk about next week. You'll we'll certainly start getting into more with the college hockey postseason coming our, our way. NHL Draft continues to roll, international tournaments coming up. There's a lot to get to in the coming weeks and months in what is apparently, you know, through the pandemic, the, the never-ending hockey seasons where we just keep going all the way through and uh, just getting my calendar all set for August and Edmonton. Can't, can't wait. So <laughs> anyway, it's been great to have you guys with me. I hope that you enjoyed the Olympic coverage and the many Olympic podcasts that we did. I certainly enjoyed talking to the guests that I had on and I appreciate everybody that has listened in so far. For episode 37, for Talking Hockey Sense, for Matt Moran, for myself, Chris Peters, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Can't wait for next week. We'll catch you then.